0: But Hebrews chapter 7 is where I'd like to spend our time this morning. As we have a communion table set before us, I, as you know, I, I like to focus the message in preparation for what we will remember here at this time. And, and we have to recall something here as, as we go, that it's easy to turn some things in the church into a ritual, right? And uh, just by the song that we heard from the choir just a few minutes ago, that certainly was not a ritual when Christ died. There was a great deal of emotion, feeling, and understanding, and not understanding as they watched Christ crucified. And then to come to realize that that wasn't just something that uh, was brought about by the hatred of the religious leaders of that day. It was because he was dying for our sin. Can you imagine when that was first realized by the disciples or by, well that was from the viewpoint of Mary, wasn't it? That song there. To realize that Christ died for our sin in, and it was an intentional thing. What impact that hits, right there. So here in Hebrews chapter 7, I want to center our thoughts right around verse 23 through verse 27. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This is a rich passage. We've got to dive into this, but let's first ask for help to understand today. Heavenly Father, we come before you again with such a theme on our hearts and in our minds this morning, We certainly, Lord, have much to gain from our time with you. And I pray that you instruct us as you promised to do. Challenge our hearts with this passage, but certainly draw us closer to yourself. Let us see again what Christ has done. And let us be thankful people as a response to what he has done. So give us understanding today and give us... uh, much application from this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our pattern of communion is, most of you know this, um, every month it has five Sundays. On the fifth Sunday, we have a communion service. And sometimes that's four times a year. We had five just recently. Last year, I think it was. uh, We actually had five Sundays like that. So, on the average, we might have our communion service four times a year. Then we also generally do it on Good Friday, too, don't we? So, about five times a year. There are some churches that do that more frequently. A church that we were a part of before chose every first Sunday. So, that was 12 times a year we had a communion service. Uh, There are some churches that do it every week. That's 52 times a year. And uh, we appreciate the deaconess setting this up for us every time. Fifty-two times. Would that make you reconsider the office? Uh, Fifty-two times a year. Now, the reality is, if if we turn it into a ritual, which I've already mentioned, and how easy that could be to go through a process of uh, liturgy, to... Go to a text to read, to say a certain prayer, to uh, go through a process, then take the bread and take the cup. Uh, It's easy to do that. It's a thing we can do, right? Some would go even so far as to consider this some sort of a merit in taking a communion that uh, somehow in the act itself, there's forgiveness of their sins. Uh, Or that they gain some special standing before God. There's there's actually some churches in history that held that over people, that they refused to give them communion because they weren't in fellowship with the church, or at least what the church thought they were supposed to be. And they thought they were depriving them of their relationship with God, or even depriving them of entrance to heaven because they hadn't had their communion. No, so it can easily become a merit system that some practice in that way. Now, in the Old Testament, we're aware that there were sacrificial systems set up. If you read some of those passages, and, and for those who like to read through the Bible in a year, uh, generally Leviticus is a tough book to get through. <laughs> uh, Numbers follows that, and then there's Deuteronomy, and by then they're really dragging, and it's already April. And they're thinking, well, I'll never make it this year. So they call it the two-year plan then uh, because they readjust to the whole schedule. But, you know, it's hard to go through that because we didn't grow up in that system. And thankfully, we're not in that system. I'm not in the mood to sacrifice animals for you every week. Uh, that, that's not what I feel I should be doing. But there was a requirement for them to follow that system, right? Right? In that Old Testament economy, it was because the Lord told them to, that they were to bring these sacrifices. And among them particularly were the sacrifices related to sin. There were trespass offerings. And they were to bring those offerings, and, and that whole process was to remind them that they were sinful people, and they had to trust God with the solution. Now, the priest in the Old Testament knew the process. Those books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and such were their textbook. That was their their manual. That was their guide for everyday labor. They had to follow those uh, those processes, those systems. They were designated in certain way that the ritual, the sacrifice, it was all coordinated by God. And it was explained in the law and it was to be obeyed faithfully. You want a good example of when they don't, there were two sons of Aaron that approached God in an inaccurate way, and God struck them with fire and killed them on the spot. Well, that would really mess up a church service, wouldn't it? But these things, according to Scripture, were called shadows. Shadows. You know what a shadow is, don't you? A shadow, we, we're, we're aware of that. It's sometimes a little fun to make shadows, especially as younger folks. We we made shadows. I know you did, too, how to make the dog and the bird and all these other things. By the way, if you go like this, you can make a great Frankenstein by, by putting your hand like that and, and stand real still, and you could look like Frankenstein if you want. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways you can work with shadow. and they're kind of fun. But w- with the shadow concept, you know that uh, the shadows generally take the shape of the original, generally. I mean, if we've got two arms, the shadow has two arms and such like that. So it may make us tall and thin. It might make us short and squatty. <laughs> it could change the, depending on the direction of the light. But... The shadow will move as the original moves. The shadow is not the original. You know that, don't you? It is not the original. the The shadow is more like the example of what is real. Now, it's interesting that that concept is used a lot in the Old Testament uh, and explained in the New Testament. For example, you're in Hebrews right here. Go over to chapter 10 for a minute. Chapter number 10, start with verse... uh, Well, let's start with verse 1 here. It's It's about 14 verses long, but watch this section. As detailed as it is, you will see simply from the very first verse of chapter 10, verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. For it is impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, and who is he? Jesus Christ. He says, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the books it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which is offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Mark that in your thinking. That's an important phrase. Once for all. You see it? Notice how often it pops up. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, there it is again, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting From the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That last verse is very important to you. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've been sanctified through his great work. And notice what it just said about you. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Is that important? That's essential to know. Now, back up just a couple of chapters, chapter 8, a smaller section. Chapter 8, verse 3 through verse number 5. It says, but every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest has also has something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses warned by God when he was about to erect the temple or erect the tabernacle. Uh, For he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Now that may sound like a complicated little passage, and you say, what does that mean? That means God had designed this Old Testament system of sacrifice and tabernacle, and all of it was designed to point to what Christ would do. So they went through the shadow process. The example. God said, make sure you keep the pattern. The pattern is very important, because it's speaking of Christ. Right? So, that was a responsibility. And then when we jump into the book of Colossians, I'll read this to you in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Colossian believers are being written to, and they're told also that the Old Testament system was merely a shadow of Christ. He says, Paul says in chapter two sixteen. Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festivals or new moons or the Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that's where it becomes very clear, right? All these things were speaking of Christ. So the Old Testament priests had a task to perform. And there's a contrast here. Back to our chapter 7 passage, verse 23 through verse number 27. There's a contrast that starts out as this passage is explained to us. He says, the former priests, in verse 23, on the one hand existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. Here's a common thing for you: If you were a priest, say that you were of the tribe of Levi and your job was to minister as priest. Now there were thousands of them. A tribe of, of the tribe of Levi might run 25,000 people, and of that there's, let's say a third of that are men who would serve as priests. Uh, you're looking at a pretty good number there. A pretty good number, a little less than 10,000, maybe 7,000, maybe a little bit more. They served as priests. And you say, well, that sounds like that temple's going to get kind of crowded there. <laughs> they didn't all serve all the time. They were on a rotation basis. So there were a handful on hand, and then they'd go off, and the next group would come in, and it just rotated like this. But they would serve from the ages of 30 to 50. 20 years, and then they retired. Sound like a good plan so far? 20 years, they served as priests. That was a common thing for them. But if you happened to have been a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest, his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons down the line, you were then to be the high priest, and you did not retire. You held that position for life. You had a, a responsibility uh, over all the priesthood but this position was not to be uh, given up it was not replaced by anyone else except your son who would take your place that was the role of the Aaron priesthood but here's our problem as mentioned in verse number 23 all of these men whether they were the regular priests or whether they were the high priests, they all had the same problem they eventually died and they had to be replaced. So here they serve and then they, they, they need replaced and they eventually die because that's the problem They is referenced in verse 23. They kept dying. Do you know over the course of, of Aaron all the way to the destruction of Jerusalem they said there was at least 83 high priests as they go through time. That's quite a long time if you, even if you give them each 100 years. Uh, That's a lot of time to consider that. Most probably didn't live that long. But that's what he says. The former priests, on the one hand, though they existed in greater number, which we're talking about thousands perhaps, if it's regular priests, or maybe a hundred if they're high priests, they were prevented from continuing that role because of death. And then you move to verse 24, and it says, but Jesus... So you see the contrast coming. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. He is not like the house of Aaron. He's not like the tribe of of Levi. Matter of fact, he wasn't even from those tribes. It says simply, he continues forever. He continues forever. There's something wonderful just in that phrase. When we talk about our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the only one we have. He's the only one we need. He lives forever. He has no predecessor. He has no successor. He's the only one. The one that my parents needed was Jesus Christ. The ones that our grandparents needed was Jesus Christ. The ones that lived 150 or 200 or 300 years ago, who was the high priest they needed then? Jesus Christ. And if the Lord should tarry in this world go another 100 years or 200 years or 1,000 years, guess who still will be the high priest that they need? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This is a significant contrast we're setting up here. Simply stated, if that Old Testament priest was your priest, you would continually be updating email addresses. You would have to keep changing those little phone numbers in your phone. Because... Well, you get a new one. Maybe this week you have Jedediah as your priest, and next week you some Amelita or somebody. I don't know, but they're always changing names because there are new priests coming on to take the place of the old one. But if Jesus were your priest, you would have him forever. No one takes his place. No one came before him. No one will come after him. We call him perpetual in the priesthood. Now, understanding that basic fact is very important for the very next verse, 25. And I want to show you the value of Jesus Christ as our perpetual priest here. Therefore, it says, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is one of my favorite all-time passages. I love these words. So I'm going to go slow. All right? I want to stop and admire it with you. Kind of chew on it and enjoy what we see here. It starts with a therefore, doesn't it? Or you might have wherefore, if you're reading from a King James this morning. We're coming to a conclusion here. We're bringing in an application of a great truth. Jesus remains the priest. So therefore, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Well, notice the focus isn't right on us; it's on him. The very next thing says he is able. I've said this before, but I say this is theology in a nutshell. If you want to know what he is able to do, just set this next to anything he does. Creation, he's able. Salvation, he's able. Talk about the end times? Guess what? He's able. Everything is based on this concept. It's the word dunamai in the Greek. It means ability. And sometimes people put it down with dynamite. Dunamai, dynamite, it sounds a lot like. But dynamite, you blow things up. This word is speaking of ability. Ability. There are great words for power in the Greek language. There's the word kratos. Kratos is strength as it's exercised. There's uh, energia, which you could probably guess the English word of that word. Uh, Energy, which is strength operating. There's issues, word, which speaks of a power possessed, whether you actually use it or not. It's a virtue, if you will. He has power. And then there's dunamai, which is simply the word ability. Now, what's fun about those words, and I've given you a little Greek lesson, huh? Uh, in Ephesians chapter one verse nineteen, all four of them show up in the same verse, and it's such a neat little verse because it says in Ephesians one nineteen, "What is the surpassing greatness of His power that's dunamai ability toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working there's energia His operating strength of the strength that's prastos His strength as exercised." of his might, which is the power he possesses. So you say, okay, what's that? Well, it's a very powerful verse. I said that on purpose. (laughs) It's a very powerful verse. But when you stop and consider this, you consider what God is able to do. Go look at the stars. Look at the world around us. We see his handiwork everywhere, don't we? Scripture tells us that. The heavens declare the glory of God. We see what he is able to do in creation. And we ought to be in awe. We ought to be in awe. We speak of the laws of nature and how they operate. Who invented such things? God did. And the power that we see in in the sky, in the ocean, we we see it in the solar system, we see the power of wind, don't we? We acknowledge all these things of of the great power of our God. And take all that, this is what the verse is saying, what God is able to do in all this power, guess where he's aimed it? It said right in the middle of the verse, to those who believe... He's taken that power and He's put it toward those who believe. That same power has made you a child of His. Now, does that sound like a flimsy deal? Does that sound like something so fragile that you're not sure it's going to last? Sometimes we treat our salvation that way, don't we? When we look at ourselves, Yes. Because we see ourselves in this picture and we say, well, Lord, you know me. (laughs) I don't know how this is going to last. Salvation is not based on you or me, folks. And I would start with that and say, I'm very glad. He is able. That's where it starts. He is able. He is able to save. In our passage here in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Jesus is able to save. The disciples asked that question once. The rich young ruler, the conversation that he had with Jesus, Jesus told him to go sell everything and come and follow him, and the man went away grieved because he owned much property, and he didn't do it. And Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, "Uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to illustrate that and he says it's even easier for a camel to climb through the eye of a needle, right? Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were absolutely astonished by that. And they said, which we would have said if we were there, I'm sure, then Lord, who can be saved? If a rich man can't get in, who can? And Jesus said this statement back to them. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Who says? God does. Because He can do it, right? He is able to do it. So, putting two thoughts together, very fascinating, fascinating in this fact. Number one, Jesus being able to save, according to Hebrews chapter 7, is something that He can do something for you that no one else can. Right? You can't save yourself. Nobody else can save you. I can't save you. I'm sorry. I can't do a thing to save you. Alright? You can't save me either. Jesus can. And the second thing that goes with that, because Jesus is able to save, that equates him with God, because only God can save. So who is Jesus? He is God. How well does he say? Hebrews 7.25, you've got two words, option. If you're reading the New American Standard, like I am this morning, it says, forever. If you're reading the King James, you see, to the uttermost. (laughs) That's a neat word. The uttermost. Well, the idea behind the uttermost, one commentary pointed this out I thought was really quite interesting. To the uttermost. So you're talking about guilt, and you're talking about the extent in which God is able to save you, and the power of this death on your behalf. There is no sin outside of His ability. None. He can save a sinner anywhere, at any time. He can reach there. He can reach there. How many times do people say, but if you only knew what I did, he knows what you did. And he can save to the uttermost. I think that's a fascinating concept. I also like the way the word forever reads, don't you? To the complete end, is the Greek phrase here, to the complete end. There is no partial salvation in this word. He didn't save you 50%. He didn't save you 90%. He didn't leave some sort of sin residue that he couldn't erase. His salvation does not have an expiration date. Don't go looking for it. It's not on there. It's very satisfying to know that it's complete. It is lacking nothing. It never fades. It never ends. You are quite secure in this salvation. Because it's not based on you. It's based on Him. It's based on Him. Notice how it says it so clearly in verse 25. He is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Through Him. That's not your merit. That's not my merit. That's not a ritual. That's not saying a certain kind of uh, uh, pre-planned prayer or such like that. That's not it at all. It's through Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ. And when He saved you, He saved you completely. Nothing left undone. Nothing left undone. Those who draw near to God, through Him, is what it says. Now, The reason why that's so secure and the way I could present it to you this morning because if it's starting to rattle you a little bit and you say, but you know, I wasn't brought up that way. (laughs) I was brought up to think other than that. You know what? I was too. I was brought up to think that my salvation was fragile. That if I did something, oh boy, am I in trouble. I better redo that. And we did. You know, I walked down that aisle maybe 30 or 40 times as a teenager. The Lord was saying, oh, there he comes again. I saved him the first time. And he still keeps coming here. Because I didn't know salvation wasn't built on me. It was built on him. And when I came to understand this, what relief there was to my soul. If you're wrestling with this, listen to the words. He saves forever. Those are great words. Why can He do that? Well, the verse goes on to say, since He always lives to make intercession for them. If He should die, notice the if, if He should retire, if He should quit, we would be doomed. But He doesn't. He lives. You see what the big therefore is saying to us in verse 25? Uh, Let me illustrate it for you as we move a, a little bit closer to this communion table today. In verse 26 and number 27, it says, For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This is not ritual. This is not liturgy. We're talking about what Christ has done, what he has done. He didn't have to deal with his own sin problem first. He didn't have to go like the normal priest would have. By the way, these priests, before they could even start the day, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could offer one for you. Because they had to be right with God themselves. And so, that was part of the practice. They came in and they offered up offerings for their own spiritual problems so they could deal with other people's spiritual problems. Jesus didn't need to do that. That's what verse 26 says. He's innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. But it goes on to say, he did what he did. His sacrifice... Once for all, when he offered up himself. Did you hear it? How often? Once for all. He offered up himself for the sins of the people. He offered himself up for our sins. Was it sufficient? One time! And it was sufficient before God. Do we need to add to that? No, we don't. There's a reality in just that phrase. He did it. It's done. It's complete. We can't change that. We can't erase that. We can't diminish that. We cannot defile that. We cannot erase any concept of that. He did it. And it's done. And it's permanent. And it will never change. So how could we come to this this morning and think that somehow by doing this we're going to gain merit with God when Jesus already gives us that merit. And it's already done. Why do we come here then? To remember. Right? We're here to remember. Lord Jesus says, for often as you do it, you remember my death. We're here to remember that salvation, that forgiveness he's given to us. Remember, I started with how blessed is a man whose transgressions have been forgiven. You in Jesus Christ have been forgiven. Are you convinced? Or are you still trying to find ways to to appease him? You're trying to find ways to to get him to, to recognize that you need help. You're trying to go through some merit, some system, some ritual, some liturgy. You're trying to do something to get his attention. And all the while he's been trying to get your attention. My son died for you, he said. And that was sufficient for me. And it's permanent. Through him you're saved. And you're saved forever. Now, whose perspective do you prefer this morning? Yours or his? Isn't it such a beautiful passage to come to? Just as we walk up to this table, as we we pass this cup, as we pass this thing. Jesus accomplished something so great for us, so magnificent for us, in that he saved us. He secured it, because he ever lives. That's how he is able to do. And if you're still trying to secure it yourself, it's a useless task you have. It's a pointless thing you do. He says to come to me by faith. Alright? That's why we're going to remember this morning what he has done. And we're going to do it with thankful hearts, aren't we? Because it's not based on us. It's based on him. For that cause, we should pray. Heavenly Father, your text before us today is so powerful, so important for us. For so often, Lord, we we go about the systems of merit and, and we try very hard to accomplish something that's already been accomplished. Lord, you know very well whatever we present is so far inferior and will never count to anything. But what Jesus did was sufficient and it's powerful and it's able to save us and it saves us forever because he lives and will always live. What a great high priest we have. One who not only offers up what we need but he offered up himself. And as we go into this reminder today, Lord, this communion service. May our hearts be thankful hearts as we remember that this was done for us. And may Jesus Christ be praised. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.